Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Wednesday night. And tonight we are picking it up in the book of Psalms. Psalms where we'll be for the next 10 Wednesday nights. No, we won't be that long in the book of Psalms, but we're going to be here for a few weeks. So if you would turn to the book of Psalms with me. Psalms, of course, is the largest book that we have in the Bible. Probably one of the most read books, I would say, uh, of the Bible. It's a book that a lot of people quickly turn to, gravitate to, look into, because there's just such great nuggets of, of wisdom and truths for us here. It's a, it's a fascinating book, and there's some real practicality to the book of Psalms as well, because it's a book that's filled with human emotion. And guess what? We are filled with human emotion. So when we get in the book of Psalms, right away there's things that just jump out to us. They're like, oh man, I can relate to that. Oh yeah, man, that's something I'm dealing with. Oh, that's something I'm going through wrestling with. Oh, this really speaks to me right here because we are emotional people. And, and the book of Psalms really just begins to show us this human emotion that's being poured out of its writers. Now, Interestingly, every subject or feeling that we may encounter, I think, we can find covered in the book of Psalms here. If you're fearful, there's a psalm for that. Psalm 23, 56 to 91. If you're discouraged, there's a psalm for that. Psalm 42. If you're anxious, there's a psalm for that. Psalm 37 or 73. If you're struggling with guilt of sin, there's a psalm for that. We'll look at those two. Psalm 32 or 51 here tonight. Listen. If you're happy, and I hope you are, if you're happy and you know it, clap. Okay, we won't do that. But listen, there's a psalm to express that. Psalm 66 or 92. Many of the psalms here are just speaking right into the very things that we're going through, dealing with in life. And of course, that's just a sample of many that reveal to us just that extent of human emotion that's seen through these psalms as these authors are writing just from this point of view of things that they're dealing with, struggling through, uh, experiencing in their own life and trials that they're dealing with. And yet, the book of Psalms has been given to us as a book of praise. In fact, the very name, the Hebrew name for the book of Psalms is Tehillim, which means praises. So many of these Psalms were used then not just to pour out the struggles and the, the human emotion, but these psalms were given so we could sing praise to God. This becomes then the Hebrew hymnal, basically the book of Psalms. The opportunity for us just to pour out here now, not only our heart of emotion, but to pour out in praise to the Lord, you see. So the book of Psalms is, is a book that's written over a, a thousand year period. Now that's a long time for one author, but of course that's not the way that Psalms is written. There's many different authors that have added to the book of Psalms, starting right from Moses, who wrote Psalm 90, and extends all the way up to the time of David, and even beyond to when the people of Israel were coming back as captives in Babylon. And so this period of time kind of goes right through this thousand-year period here where different authors are writing. David, of course, is one of the most... Um, uh, is the guy that's kind of seen as the main author of Psalms. He wrote um, about half of them. His name appears in 73 titles. Other writers are the sons of Korah, Asaph, Solomon, Moses, Heman, Hezekiah, and Ethan. Some Psalms don't have any 
uh, identity as to who the author is. But so there's different contributors to the book of Psalms that takes us through a, a pretty wide period of time. Now, the Psalms are divided up into five different books, all right? Book one, Psalm 1 to chapter 41. Book two, Psalms 42 to 72, and so forth. So all the way, book one to book five takes us right through. It's divided up that way. And many see in this uh, a correlation to the Pentateuch. Now, here's how we're going to kind of break this down here for us as far as kind of titles of some of these um, books that we have. We're going to look at the songs of relationship, songs of redemption, songs of refuge, songs of rebellion's cost, and songs of revival. Like I say, these all kind of correlate to the first five books of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy here. So each of these books really kind of detail a lot of similarities to what's going on in those books. Songs of relationship, God creating Adam and Eve there in the Garden of Eden to be in relationship with them. Songs of Redemption as the book of Exodus details for us how God delivered the people of Israel out of bondage and brought them in. Songs of Refuge, Leviticus, of course, the book of the tabernacle and the way that God desired to bring people into this sanctuary in a sense of the tabernacle, Songs of Refuge. Songs of Rebellion's Cost reveals to us again what happened in the book of Numbers, how they were struggling through the wilderness, oftentimes falling into sin, complaining and grumbling, and God had to deal with them. They were kept out of the promised land, so rebellions cost her. And then songs of revival, Deuteronomy, again, as they look forward to coming now into the promised land, Deuteronomy reminding them of the law and just being excited for what God is doing. So these things here really detail for us those first five books of the Bible as the book of Psalms is broken down into five different books. So the end of each book, interestingly enough, there is a, a doxology or praise to God that's given. For example, the end of Psalm 41. If I just jump over there with me here, let's look at that together. Psalm 41. Here's how it ends in verse 13. Simply says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Each of the books will end with a similar kind of doxology, just kind of like that reminder again of what God is doing and saying amen and amen. And so that's how each book ends. And so I just pray that this book here, as we go through Psalms, will just again bring us and lead us all the more to be people of praise, to be reminded of what God has done for us, who God is to us, and that it will cause us just to respond in that similar, you know, frame of mind of just praise to the Lord. So all the Psalms here, Ray Stedman says, all the Psalms are designed to teach us to do one thing, to worship. These Psalms reflect every human emotion, but they do so in a distinct and important way. They are emotions seen in relationship to God. Every Psalm is written in the presence of God. This book, therefore, teaches us how to be honest before God. That's good. That's important. Because if you have a problem, well, tell God about it. Don't hide it. Don't cover it up. Especially don't get pious and sanctimonious and try to smooth it over. If you're angry with God, say so. If you're upset about something he's done, tell him so. If you are resentful, bring it out. If you're happy and glad, express that. That is what worship is, a heart's honesty. It's interesting, as we went through John 4 recently, and, we, and, and you know, Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. And what does he say to her there in, in chapter 4, verse 23? That the true worshipers are those that worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
coming to the Lord in honesty and in truth. See, God is looking for that kind of worshiper. And as you worship in spirit and truth, you will discover a new source of strength. If you can be honest before God, even before those troublesome problems that you're facing, the trials of life that you're trying to navigate through, if you'll just be honest before God, then you're going to find grace as you look to him and find help and find strength before the Lord. It, and it's a wonderful thing as we go through these psalms just to really see how much Jesus is in the psalms. That's, I think, so wonderful. The, the book that Israel used to lead them in worship at the temple will just be a book that's so instrumental in just kind of pointing them ahead to Jesus. They won't know it at the time. As we're saying these psalms, they won't recognize that this is all speaking about Jesus, but there's many messianic psalms that we see through the book of Psalms. 17 of them are, are messianic. They look to the life, uh, to the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, these psalms here are ones that are considered messianic, and you'll see them on the screen there, hopefully, but about 17 of them. So as I said, Psalms, longest book that we have in the Bible, it contains the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, and it contains the shortest chapter in the Bible, which is, anybody know? Psalm 117, two chapters before it. So you got the shortest chapter, you got the longest chapter all here in the longest book of the Bible. And so we're going to break this kind of flyover of Psalms into probably three nights here. We're going to be starting off here tonight. We're going to look through a number of Psalms. Uh, and then Pete's going to continue it next two Wednesdays while we have our Mexico team down in Mexico. So we're going to probably over three nights kind of break this up here and take our time going through it. But the third night, what we want to do is kind of take some time to hear from you and having you share some of your favorite psalms or some of the psalms that maybe we've looked at and how they kind of spoke to you. And so just to kind of have a time of, of sharing here in that third night in three weeks' time just about, you know, how the psalms have ministered to you over the course of your life or maybe just over the course of the last three Wednesday nights that we've been together. So we'll be doing just that. Here's what uh, Calvin said. He said, I may truly call this book an anatomy of all parts of the soul. For no one can feel a movement of the Spirit which is not reflected in this mirror. All the sorrows, troubles, fears, doubts, hopes, pains, perplexities, and stormy outbreaks by which the hearts of men are tossed have been depicted here to the very life. So again, as we go through this, it just, it's, it's exciting and, and comforting to know when we look at these psalms, there's some of the things that these writers are expressing and sharing because, again, they just speak so often right into our own condition and situations of life. And it's that that can bring comfort, but also point us in the right direction we need to be in, and that is to the Lord here. Well, let's start off here. Let's look at Psalm 1, and let's just read through this psalm here to really kind of get us going. It says, Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way the ungodly shall perish." So notice how this psalm begins. I think it's, it's very important. The first word, blessed. <laughs> blessed is the man who walks 
in this way. Now that word blessed is a great word and it's a great word to really start the whole of the Psalms. Psalms is going to show the way of blessedness and we see that it also reveals the alternative. The other side, if a person is not going to walk in these ways, the last word that we see in Psalm 1 is the word what? Perish. All right. So it kind of shows the, the opposite side. If you don't choose to, you know, walk in this way and be blessed, well, here's the alternative now for you. Now, blessed is in the Hebrew, the word esher, which means happy. It's from the root asher, meaning to be straight or to be right. And here's the idea. It's, it's truly that when we bring ourselves into a straight path with the Lord, when we choose to walk in a right way before God, that's what's going to lead to you being blessed. Or, as it means really, to be happy. Isn't that great? It's not following the Lord that's going to lead to you being, you know, kind of trapped or, you know, burdened down or just zapped of joy. No, it's when you are walking in a right way, following the Lord, walking on the path He's laid out for us, that you are going to be truly the most happy that you can be. And happiness is not found in a pleasure or things. It comes from that right relationship with God. That relationship with God is only found in and through Jesus Christ, as we know, and it brings great joy. And I love the way that the, the New Living Translation translates this. It says this, Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers. Oh, the joys of those. Isn't it great to just be joyful? See, that's the difference between joy and happiness. Happiness can oftentimes be up and down, but joy is something that's lasting. And it's lasting, it's something we can experience all the time if we are in Jesus, if we're standing in Him, because we know that there's something greater than the conditions we find right in front of us that leads us on in that joy. It's a joy of the Lord that is our strength. So blessed is the man who, who walks, right? Now notice that, who walks in these things. That's how the Christian life is to be. It's to be a progression. It's often described or, or likened to this idea of a walk. In fact, that's what the Bible oftentimes says. It tells us in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Other verses in God's word, Ephesians 4.1, Philippians 3.16, Colossians 2.6, all speak about this idea of the believer and his walk. Blessed is the man who walks. See, what happens when you walk? Well, you move forward, right? You're, you're heading somewhere. It speaks of kind of a continued progression, but there's a way to walk and a way not to walk. You can either move forward in things of God or things not of God, but it's imperative for the believer to be one that is walking and walking in the right way. Sometimes we might kind of just think, well, I may not be going forward, but there's no harm in that. I'm just kind of staying sort of steady here. But look at what we're showing here. We're showing a walk, then a standing, and then a sitting. It, it, it becomes really the cost of complacency. It's the progression uh, and the peril that we saw with Lot, where he ends up just kind of sitting in the gate uh, of Sodom. But you see, the one that's moving forward in the things of God is going to be the one that's blessed. Not only blessed, but they're going to be fruitful and flourishing. 
He's going to be like the one that's planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Fruitful and flourishing. Man, that's how I want my life to be. And how does that come about? It comes about by delighting in God's word. Delighting in God's word means that you're, you're meditating on it and, and living it out. And remember, to, to meditate is not the idea, as it's often been associated with today, uh, of emptying your mind. That's not the biblical idea of meditation. In fact, that word meditate really means to, to ponder by speaking to yourself. To be speaking forth that which is right and true. To be, in other words, reminding yourself of the things that you're reading and taking in and, and kind of like processing that. Pondering, speaking to yourself, reminding yourself of the truth of that which is right. And the Psalms are a lot of that. It's as though at times, you know, the author of some of these Psalms is just kind of having a conversation with themselves, pondering or processing what's going on, but so as to just kind of give it all to God, to think what is right and true here. And you'll hear that in some of the Psalms, just kind of having a little conversation with themselves. So, Psalms now, and I mentioned this last week with the book of Job, it started that kind of section of, of scripture known as poetry. Psalm continues that poetry on. Psalm is a, a beautiful book of poetry, but we might start to read through this and wonder, like, where's all, the, where's all the rhyming? Where's kind of the rhythm of the poetry? I don't hear any of that in this here, but that's not the way that Hebrew poetry was. Hebrew poetry was more about parallelisms of which this first chapter really gives us some good examples because here in verse 1, we see synthetic parallelism which develops the theme of the first line in the second line. It kind of builds on it. But then you also see synonymous parallelism in verse 2 which takes a thought and explains it now in, in a similar way. And kind of, again, sort of repeats it here in a, in a different way. So Psalm 1, a great psalm reminding us of what the life is going to be like that's walking according to God's word, that's not going down the wrong path. They're going to be blessed. They're going to be fruitful. They're going to be flourishing. Now, here's what Heidsick said. He said, if Psalm 1 is anthropocentric, centered on man's response to God, then Psalm 2 is theocentric, focusing on God's response to mankind's rebellious ways, which is to provide a, a means of reconciliation, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Psalm 2 is the first of a large group that we call Messianic Psalms. God has had his plan of redemption in play since before the world began, so it shouldn't be surprising that so much of the Old Testament reflects the coming and future reign of the Messiah. So let's look at Psalm 2, and let's read through this one. Hey, let's do something kind of fun tonight, okay? Um, let's do, I forget the kind of technical term that you call this, um, but let me read the first verse, and then you guys out loud are going to read the second verse. I'm going to read the next verse, and you read the verse after that. What's that called again? Yeah, responsive reading. Thank you. That's what I'm trying to say. So let's do that. You guys ready? And, and I know some of you might have different translations. Those that have the New King James, like I do, say it a little bit louder, so you drown out everybody else. It's saying something different, but it'll be all good. All right? Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall love. The Lord shall 
Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Oh, yeah, that's a great ending right there. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So what we see here in, in Psalm 2, first of these messianic psalms, is we see the nations here now, they're all conspiring together. They're, they're raging. They're kind of angry against God. Yet God is never in trouble. This is not even a threat to the Lord, right? He sits back and he laughs at the futility of man trying to overthrow God. That's what it was like when, when my kids would want to wrestle with me. I would just kind of sit back and laugh. They're trying to give it all they got, you know? And they're trying to take me down. I would just sit there and laugh. It's great. Still, to, to this day, still happens that way, but. <laughs> right? Okay, no, he's not looking at me very happy back there. Okay. Now, here we read something, verse 2. That the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, that word anointed in the Hebrew is Mashiach, which is translated Messiah, right? Anointed one. Now, all the kings of Israel were kind of seen as the anointed ones. They were, they were anointed for service, but this is speaking of the ultimate anointed one, Jesus Christ. Notice we see later on in verse 7 that you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. So we see this rebellion that's going forth here. The kings were, are wanting to come out from any submission to God. They want to break their bonds, right? They don't want, they don't want God to rule over them. But they, they have it all wrong, right? Let us, verse 3, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. They're saying, we don't want to have anybody that's ruling over us. Let's break free from this. You know, that's the way that a lot of people think, right? I don't want God to rule over me. I want to break, I want to live in freedom. But you see, God is not a bondage bringer. He's a bondage breaker. It's only through God that you're ultimately going to be free and enjoy the freedom that he has for us. So many people think, oh no, I'm not going to be in submission to anybody. I'm going to be the master of my own self. And, and a lot of people think, man, definitely not going to have God. But you're going to have something in your life that you're going to be a servant to. The, the key to real joy is finding the right master. And that's Jesus Christ, who's a good master, who loves us, who wants to set you free from all of the things that bring you into bondage. Right? You've often heard me quote, you know, Bob Dylan, who said it right, right? You're going to have to serve somebody. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Who do you choose to serve? These people have it all wrong. It's through the God that they're ultimately going to be set free, yet they think it's in breaking free from him that they will find freedom. So God 
gives them some good counsel in verses 10 to 12 there. He says simply, be wise, O kings. Serve the only true king, Jesus Christ. He says, kiss the son in verse 12. Kiss the son. See, it's better to bow before the king today than be broken by him tomorrow. And that's ultimately how this ends. Kiss the son lest he be angry and he perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. But blessed are all those who put their trust in him. That's the way to be blessed. Follow him. Serve him. Well, let's jump now. You're thinking, how are we going to get through Psalms if you're only in chapter 2 right now? Well, we're going to jump around now, okay? We're just getting ourselves kind of grounded in these first couple chapters. Jump all the way to chapter 19 now. Chapter 19. And this is a great psalm with some very familiar verses to us here. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 19 say this. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. I love that. Isn't that great? When you can just kind of look up into the heavens and see just the handiwork of God. We just look anywhere that you want to around you and just see God's handprint everywhere. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Now, Psalms 19, like I said, is oftentimes a very quoted psalm, and it reveals for us two volumes, in a sense, of how God reveals himself to us. So he reveals himself through natural revelation, his creation, but he also reveals himself through special revelation, which is his word. These are like two volumes in in his book of God declaring his glory to us. Like I said, all you have to do is look around and see God's handiwork in creation. The beauty and the order and the majesty of his creation just screams forth that there is a creator behind all of that. It it just becomes obvious, and it's sad when people who will look at anything and go, yes, that had to have had a builder, no doubt. But then they look at creation and go, no. It just all formed about by random chance. It, it just boggles the mind that people can actually be so stupid as to say that. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. That's not very nice of me to say that, but it's kind of like, I don't know what else to say. It, it, it goes against all logic, really, doesn't it? In fact, Paul would say in Romans 1.20 that it's the wonders of creation that cause people not to have an excuse, Right? To, to worship God, to follow God. They're without excuse, he says, because of the evidence all around them, just in creation. Romans 1.20. And if creation is this wonderful, right? The beauty of this creation, then how much greater is the creator behind it all? So God reveals himself through this natural revelation, his creation, but he also reveals himself through special revelation, his word. Look at, look at verse 7 of this same chapter, chapter 19, verse 7. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yeah, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. 
See, it's one thing to see the wonders of God displayed in an outward beauty of creation, but it's another thing to have the understanding of God now kind of shining right into your very soul, right into your very heart, to have the Word of God speak right into who you really are. It's His Word that touches into our our very being to reveal His wonders personally to us. It's a wonderful thing just to open up God's word and go, man, this is God's heart for us here. This is God wanting to reveal himself that as we read it, it just enters into our heart. And it's God just speaking right into us through his very word. It's amazing that we have this. Let us not take it for granted. And it's his very law that is just converting our soul. McDonald said this, there's a difference between the two books of God. Creation reveals God as the mighty one, the God of power, but his word reveals him as the one who enters into covenant relationship with his people. God's works reveal his knowledge and power, but his word reveals his love and grace. Scientific truth may stimulate our intellect, but spiritual truth convicts our heart and conscience. And that's a great way of saying that. Let's move to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Here's another great messianic psalm. And it says in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? So again, another messianic psalm. And the very words that Jesus quoted on the cross, there were the seven sayings on the cross. And this is the fourth of the seven there that Jesus uttered from the cross. And I used to have a real hard time with that. I used to hear that and think, how could, how could God forsake Jesus at such a time as that? Why, why did God lead Jesus like that? And I had a hard time with that. But you see, what was happening is that Jesus was taking on himself the whole sin of the world and allowing God to execute the fullness of his wrath upon his very son, Jesus Christ. So it was a period of time that because of the sin, Jesus experienced separation from his father for the very first time where he would utter my god my god why have you forsaken me not that god abandoned but because of sin being judged jesus was in separation from the father for the first time it's an amazing thing that jesus endured for you and for me so that we would never have to be separated from the father jesus went through that and uttered my god why have you forsaken me so that we would never have to feel that separation from the Father. Praise Jesus for that. Well, this chapter goes on to give descriptions now of Jesus' suffering on the cross. Look at verse 6 of chapter 22. But I'm a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who seek me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. These are very things that you'll, if you go to Matthew, don't, don't turn there on time, but Matthew 27, verses 39 to 44, if you're taking notes, I hope you are, but that passage right there shows us exactly these things come into fruition. And then read verse 14 of chapter 22. Verse 14 says this, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. 
For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. This is exactly what Jesus experienced there on the cross. Now, what's remarkable is that there isn't any any episode in David's life that matches this. It's a Psalm of David, but there's nothing that we can see in David's life that shows him going through anything closely resembling these things. Some will try to say that David is perhaps speaking about somebody else. Well, that's exactly it. He was writing about somebody else, but in a way that he would never have imagined that this would come many hundreds of years later. You see, up to this point, crucifixion hadn't even been invented. This was an unknown form of execution in David's day. Yet David so perfectly describes the painful experience of crucifixion. And he describes it in even a a greater detailed way than even the New Testament does. David explains what crucifixion is like in a better way than the New Testament writers, which simply, simply shows the incredible prophetic nature of God's word here. Because crucifixion would be invented a few hundred years later by the Persians. Remember um, in the book of Esther when Haman was seeking to wipe out the Jews and he wanted to, he wanted to kill and execute Mordecai? So that's hang him on the gallows. And that idea of hang him on the gallows was really just kind of like, you know, putting him on a, on a stake, like a stake right through, in a sense, kind of like crucifixion. But Jesus comes along and, and, and takes that crucifixion upon himself for all of us. The Romans would come along later after the Persians and they would perfect that style of crucifixion. But it's amazing what Jesus has done for us in taking the most painful, excruciating kind of of death. David writing that his hands and his feet were pierced pierced his his tongue clean to his jaws as Jesus cried out from the cross I'm thirsty Roman guards were casting lots for his his garments I mean David just to a T revealing what Jesus himself would experience and go through for us well continue on here Psalm 23 now in Psalm 22 we see Jesus as our good shepherd who gives his life for us, for the sheep. In Psalm 23, we see Jesus, the good shepherd, who cares for his sheep. Now, Psalm 23 is a psalm that's oftentimes, you know, quoted at a funeral, but yet it's a psalm that's full of life here, full of great encouragement for us. See, throughout Scripture, we see this relationship between God and his people depicted as that of a shepherd to his sheep. Psalm 100 verse 3 says, Know that the Lord, he is God, it is he who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. John 10 verse 11 and 12 says that the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come, Jesus says, that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Now, I think this is a very fitting depiction of Jesus or the Lord being our shepherd and us being sheep because sheep more than any other type of livestock need diligent care, special attention. Sheep can be fearful, 
timid, stubborn, and just plain dumb. All right? So that's why I think, you know, the Bible makes it very clear that we are the sheep of his pasture. Because, man, we need a lot of help. We really do. The parallels to us as sheep is not only brilliant, it's quite obvious and true. And David knew what it was like in this kind of relationship of a shepherd to the sheep. He himself was a shepherd caring for sheep. But he himself came to know what a blessing it is to have a shepherd who's caring for us. And that's what David writes about here in Psalm 23. Let's read through that here. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still water. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David just saw just the wonderful blessing of having a shepherd who is caring for us, who is leading us, who's, who's just providing for us. David experienced just the safety and the comfort in his good shepherd. Oh, I pray that we are too. Well, Psalm 32, jump over there. And we're going to kind of cover back to back here a couple psalms that really are very similar, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. These psalms go together because they detail the same situation that David was kind of dealing with or going through in his own life because of sin. See, these psalms are known as, as penitent psalms, meaning to be sorrowful and repentant over sin. Repentance is not just a, a feeling. It is an action. And these psalms are one of the greatest of the penitential psalms. We have a number of them in the book of Psalms, but these two really stand out. And these psalms are, are psalms of David when he was confronted by Nathan over the sin that he committed with Bathsheba, adultery, and then, of course, the, the preceding sin of murder, killing Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And it just reveals to us the brokenness and anguish that David felt over this incredible moral lapse. It's the basis for true repentance and forgiveness, just being broken over that. It's interesting that it's only in God's economy that brokenness is valued. That's what God desires in each of us, to have that broken, contrite spirit before the Lord. We'll look at Psalm 32, verse 1. Here's a Psalm of David, a contemplation. It says, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. Selah just simply means, so be it. Think on that. Or not so be it. It means think on that. Think about this. Kind of, it's like that pause in a psalm just to really comprehend what's being said here. So Selah. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Think on that. Now notice this. David is rejoicing over being forgiven. David came to 
understand the great blessing and joy of having your sin forgiven. There's no greater joy I think we'll ever experience than just giving our sin to the Lord, saying, Jesus, forgive me, and knowing that we're forgiven and that we stand righteous now before God. When you recognize the weight and the penalty of sin and the curse that we were under because of it, that every single one of us was guilty and doomed, cursed before God, that we were all in that boat. And to know that you've been forgiven and delivered out of that, there, there's nothing that will bring greater joy in your life to know just where you now stand with God because of Jesus Christ. Don't ever take that for granted. We as believers should be constantly walking in just great joy and happiness just for the fact that we know we're forgiven and we know where we're going. See, David knew that when he tried to hold on to his sin, when he tried to cover it, when he tried to just remain silent about it, man, it was, it was painful. It was agonizing, not just spiritually, but physically. It took a physical toll in his life. Many today are living hard lives because of sin. It's taken a toll in their life, not just spiritually, but physically. There's a way that the body just reacts to these kinds of things. I was just, interestingly enough, talking with a, a, a Trinity student today who's going through, you know, um, you know, trying to be a counselor. And I was just talking to them about, you know, what they've learned and and the one thing they said, man, one thing that really stood out was just the idea of what trauma does to a person and how the body deals with trauma in a physical way. Where oftentimes it's a physical reaction you have first before the brain even kind of registers it. And that's what David is experiencing. He's experiencing this physical reaction to the sin. It is, he says that my bones grew old. There was groaning all the day long. His hand was heavy upon him. There's no greater trauma we can face than to feel like you are in the wrong and you are not right before God. So David knew, I got to deal with that. Now, sadly, it took a prophet Nathan to kind of point the finger at him. Say, David, you're guilty. But when David recognized that, he confessed. He says there in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. See, David confessed and confession and repentance are prerequisite to forgiveness. We have to deal honestly with our condition and the reality of it. And we have to be willing to take it before the Lord. 1 John 1.9 says that if we'll confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and it cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We have to deal with that. We have to confess it. But know that when you do, he is faithful and he is just and he will forgive you and cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. Praise the Lord for that. Well, in Psalm 51, we have more of a description now of that confession and the importance of it. So jump over to Psalm 51 with me. Psalm 51, verse 1. Here it says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, 
according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. So here we see David just this idea of pouring out in confession before the Lord. And it's a very important truth that it's against God that we say, notice what he says there in verse 4. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. That's important, isn't it? To recognize that sometimes we think we can do a pretty good job of hiding our sin. Or thinking nobody's going to be hurt by this sin. I, it's okay. This is no biggie. But we have to have that mindset and go, this is a sin done against God. Remember Joseph, when he's getting confronted, grabbed by Potiphar's wife. And what does Joseph say? How can I do this sin and, and sin against God? Joseph's not thinking, how can I do this sin against your husband? Or how could you and I get involved in this sin? No, he says, how can I do this and sin against God? Every sin that we do is a sin against God. David says, Against you, you only have I sinned. This is something that hinders my relationship with you, God. So David simply wants to be honest before God, and he asks for his cleansing now in his life. Look at verse 10. David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Now, David wanted God to not just change his heart, but he says, create in me a clean heart. You know, it's the same word for create that's used in Genesis 1.1 that speaks of creation, creating something out of nothing. So regardless of how bad or how hard a heart can be, God can do a new work. Never lose hope in what God can do. Never lose hope in what, uh, praying for other people and looking at their situation and thinking, there's no way that they're ever going to change. Oh man, they're just too far. Never lose hope. Pray God, creating them a clean heart. Creating them a new heart that you can just call them to you, Lord. Now, interestingly, there in verse 11, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. It's the first time that that term Holy Spirit is used in the Old Testament. You see, typically in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was given upon certain people for certain purposes, for a certain time. Not the Holy Spirit poured out and indwelling and remaining in people's lives. But here, David says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Don't, don't remove your spirit from me. David didn't want to miss out on what God would do and supply in his life. Now, we're thankful today, as, as New Testament believers, that the Holy Spirit now is poured out and is indwelling in us as believers. He's never removed from us. Nevertheless, here's what we have to understand, is that sin puts a wedge in your relationship with God, and it hinders communion with Him. Though the Holy Spirit is not ever taken from us, there is a hindrance that sin brings in our relationship with God to where 
we're just not experiencing the blessedness and the joy that God would otherwise have for us. Just like at David there in, in Psalm 32 and the, the pain he was in when he was kind of trying to live in his sin and not deal with it. It wasn't enjoyable. Be quick to confess sin and restore that relationship with God. Don't miss out on what he has for you and don't miss out on a life of joy. It just goes back to Psalm 1, doesn't it? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly nor stands in the path of sinners nor sits in the seat of scornful. Don't go down that path. Stay walking in a way that is right and true before God and you'll be blessed. Don't let sin get in the way. Well, Psalm 58, jump over there. This is going to be kind of the last psalm that we'll probably look at here tonight. Psalm 58. Now, Psalm 58 is known as an imprecatory psalm, all right? In other words, it's a psalm that is invoking evil or a curse upon another, usually an enemy or an enemy of God. And so you'll see some other psalms there that are are imprecatory psalms. They're psalms that contain these kinds of prayers of, of God's judgment on the psalmist's enemies. So here's what we read in Psalm 58. We're going to read through um, this psalm here. It says, Do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? Do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? No, in heart you work wickedness. You weigh out the violence of your hands in the earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf cobra that stops its ear, which will not heed the voice of charmers, charming ever so skillfully. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away as waters which run continually when he bends his bow. Let his arrows be as if cut in pieces. Let them be like a snail which melts away as it goes, like a stillborn child of a woman that they may not see the sun. Before your pots can feel the burning thorns, he shall take them away as with a whirlwind, as in his living and burning wrath. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked so that men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. Now, not a very encouraging, uplifting psalm right there, right? Well, imprecatory psalms are are ones that a lot of people have problems with. And they have a hard time reconciling these kind of being in God's word. In fact, these are, are reasons why a lot of people think, why would I ever want to follow, you know, something that has this in their kind of manifesto, in their Bible, in their book here, that this is so harsh, it's so heavy, it's so strong. There's a lot of people that have just thought this is so contrary to what, you know, love seems to be all about. Or people will say it's contrary to the heart of Jesus. Now, some have theorized that these passages are not really divinely inspired, but merely you know, just reflecting the struggle that's taking place inwardly in the writer and just kind of dealing with the, the circumstance and situations they're in. Others say that these psalms reflect just a, a lower standard of ethics than that given by Christ, that those in the Old Testament didn't really have, you know, full revelation of God and how he would carry out his justice. And when they saw injustices and oppressions happening in the Old Testament, when they saw unjustness taking place, they looked to God to judge these wrongs immediately. So they kind of just figured, that's just the nature of God. 
Well, these are all very interesting ideas and theories. But what we do know is that all the scripture is given by inspiration of God. That this is not something that you look at and go, this is a, a lesser scripture in any way, or really maybe not, this isn't really inspired, this is just kind of, no, we don't look at it that way, we go, this is all of the Lord here. It's all given by inspiration. What's interesting is that Jesus, who comes along, who is the man that's full of grace and truth and love, also spoke an imprecatory message to the cities of Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. Look at what Jesus himself said in Matthew 11, verse 20 to 24. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted in heaven, will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And just in, in keeping with the New Testament here, Paul also gave a sharp warning to people who would not love the Lord. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22, he said, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come, he says. Let him be accursed. That's pretty heavy. That's pretty strong. And these are things to be aware of when, you know, talking to people and, and dealing with people in spiritual matters. You may have people come to you and say, the Bible is so harsh. You know, why would I ever want to follow it? Look at what a, a guy like David could write. That's not what I want to be a part of. It doesn't sound too loving. I don't, want to, I don't want to follow that. And many people have a, you know, a big misunderstanding of the Bible. They make excuses uh, of why they should just ignore it or why they can ignore it. So how do we reconcile passages like this? Well, for one, we know that God's overall heart through Scripture, old and new, is this, that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, 2 Peter 3, verse 9. So we don't gravitate to hard Scriptures like this as the proof text to call down fire upon our enemies, as tempting as that might be sometimes, right? You've all been there. I know you have, right? Or it's like, Lord... Where are those imprecatory psalms? I need to pray that on somebody right now. Lord, give me that verse. And we want, we're tempted to do that sometimes. But we have to understand, here's the heart of God. He's not willing that any should perish. Secondly, we have to understand what's at stake here. Because these imprecatory psalms reveal to us the righteous side of God's character. That God is not only loving and gracious, but he's righteous and he's holy. And he abhors sin. He hates sin. He must deal with sin and judgment. So these psalms become then a revelation of what's awaiting those that have walked in rebellion against God. This is simply, simply just revealing the reality of what is going to come to those that have not turned to God for forgiveness. And as we grow in love and righteousness, we should naturally have a hatred for sin and wickedness. We despise the sin, but we show love to the sinner. And we patiently wait for the Lord Jesus to come and make right all the wrongs in the world and to vindicate all those that were treated wrongly in the name of Jesus or for his name. See, that's what these psalmists are ultimately doing. They're saying, Lord, I'm turning to you. God, will you do this? Now, in their heart, they might be thinking, yeah, God's judgment needs to happen right now. If he's just, he's going to act. 
But ultimately what they're doing is saying, God, we're not taking matters in our own hands. We're leaving it to you. God, will you come and you take care of these wrongs? And that's ultimately what we know is going to happen. That's where we come in faith and say, God, though we see all these things happening, though there might be times in my life where I want to be vindicated or I want to, I want to see justice, Lord, I leave it to you. Because one day you are going to make all things right. And so I trust you and I leave it to you. That's what these psalmists are ultimately doing here. So Psalm 58, an imprecatory psalm, many of them are here. But we're going to kind of, let's see. Yeah, we'll wrap it up right there. Um, But let's just in closing look at some things that we can learn from the psalms. First of all, we can and should be very honest before the Lord. The psalms teach us to pour out our heart and our emotions before God. I'm thankful that God hears and he understands that, that he allows me to come in before him and just kind of share very honestly and truthfully what I'm dealing with, what I'm going through. And secondly, in our coming to God, we need to get a bigger reality of God. This is what happens so often in the Psalms. The writer begins with problems, but then ends in praise. I think that's so great. You know, Psalm 42, another Psalm that I... I just, I love the psalm so much. And, and here's, you know, what I was saying earlier about sometimes the psalmists, the writers, are just kind of having a conversation with themselves. That's sort of what is happening here in Psalm 42. Um, let's see here. Is it Psalm 42? Yeah. Uh, psalm 42 verse 5 says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Just having that conversation with themselves. Why are you downcast? Why are you troubled? Put your hope in God for all you have praise in my Savior, my God. This is who my God is. Sometimes we just need to come before the Lord, pour out our problems, but so that we can get a, a better picture of who God is and what he's done for us and allow our problems to begin to turn to praise. Number three, the Psalms keep us grounded because we learn that many godly people went through difficulties. And their solution is to come to God and seek Him. We're not immune from problems, but may we learn to be quick to turn them over to God and seek Him. That's what we learn here in Psalms. Just a few of, I'm sure, many things that we can take away from the Psalms. But um, pick it up next time here, next Wednesday with Pete. Why don't we stand? Let's just close with um, maybe a song or two, since this is kind of the book of praise. Let's just um, do that. I'm going to... This lead us in a couple songs here. So.